This episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Huden, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Cap in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I watched the film a few weeks ago. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, and especially if you loved my episode with Jordan Cannon, episode 115, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, free as can be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, free as can be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents free as can be, and we hope you enjoy the film. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This stuff is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I use the repair cream almost every single night, all the time. I use it multiple times a night if I'm climbing in a sharp and crimpy area, like in Waco Tanks or in Leavenworth or at Smith Rocks. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin's torn up, I wash my hands and then I apply the repair cream several times throughout the evening. And it really does wonders for helping my skin heal faster and getting me back on the rock the next day. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to Rhino Skin Solutions to check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And if you want to learn more about how to use Rhino products, it seems really simple on the service, I'm sure, but... There's a lot of nuance to this stuff, how to dial your skin in for a specific rock type, for instance, if you're going to go on a trip. I recorded an episode with Justin Brown, the founder of Rhino, who's a friend of mine, way back in episode 22. I still think it's a great episode, so you can go check that out to learn more. One final time, rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Shortform. Shortform gives you the highest quality book summaries in the world. Shortform summaries contains the book's key ideas, but they also have interactive exercises and add smart insights and analyses to the book's summary. I love to read, and I think reading is important, and for sure, nothing can substitute sitting down and actually reading a great book cover to cover. The reason I love short form is because it essentially gives you the nuggets from today's top books. How many times have you read an amazing book, learned things that totally blew your mind, only to forget them a handful of weeks later because you didn't take any notes? I have definitely done that. Shortform helps you remember the key lessons from books you've read, as well as discover new books you need to read. Shortform summaries are written by professional authors, PhDs, and Ivy League graduates, so you can trust in writer quality. So join Shortform today and join thousands of curious readers to get smarter 
faster. Head over to shortform.com slash nugget to join me on Shortform for a five-day free trial and 20% off your annual subscription. That's five days of unlimited access for free and 20% off your annual subscription by going to shortform.com slash nugget or by clicking the link down below in your podcast app. Learn faster, get smarter with Shortform. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Dr. Rebecca Williams. Dr. Rebecca Williams is a clinical psychologist, a performance coach, and the author of Climb Smarter, Mental Skills and Techniques for Climbing. I'm going to read a short bio from her website, Dr. Rebecca Williams is a consultant clinical psychologist. She started climbing at university and qualified as a clinical psychologist around 20 years ago and as a climbing instructor not long after that. Since then, she has been coaching climbers on mental skills for climbing, working with hundreds of climbers every year on all aspects of their head game to develop their confidence and improve their climbing psyche. I was really excited to talk to Rebecca. And of course, with head game and mindset, there's so much we can and could have talked about in this conversation. But we decided to really focus this conversation on fear of falling. This was a very deep dive into fear of falling. And it was a very different conversation than any that I've heard around this topic of fear and falling. We went really deep. And the thing that interested me in this topic with Rebecca is that she really goes deep into the fears at the root of fear of falling. There's a bunch of different fears that can manifest as fear of falling. So we got into fear of the sensation of falling, fear of failure, fear of being judged by your peers, fear of fear, that was super interesting, fear of being out of control, and several other fears and how they interact with one another. And and I think you'll be surprised by how helpful this conversation was. It was really helpful for me I don't feel like fear of falling is a big issue for me at this point, but I still got a lot out of this conversation. We talked about perfectionism and how for most of us climbers, our drive is really overdeveloped and our self-soothing system, our ability to relax and wind down and calm that anxiety that we feel when we're about to try a hard red point, for instance, that's really underdeveloped for a lot of us. And Rebecca has all the tools. It was super cool. We talked about breathing exercises to reduce anxiety. We talked about some of the pre-climb routines that she likes to give to her clients, how they can be helpful. We talked about meditation and mindfulness and how that can be helpful with fear of falling, depending on what the root cause is. And about shifting our focus from focusing on achievement and sending to a focus on mastery, which I really resonated with and thought was super cool. So. All that to say, I think there's something in this conversation for everyone, regardless of whether or not you feel like fear of falling is something that holds you back in your climbing. And I hope you enjoy this deep dive into fear of falling and head game with Dr. Rebecca Williams. And I feel I need to just let you know, my kids are in the next room, so they're at the office with me. They are watching TV, so chances are they won't bother me for the next two days if I leave them to it, but um, just in case there's a sudden interruption. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) All right. 
How old are your kids? Uh, five and nearly eight. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Both boys. They're, um, they're a lot of fun at the moment. The hard bit's kind of over, I feel, and they're into the fun phase. <laughs> mm. That's great. Yeah. I don't have, um, I don't have kids myself, but I have uh, a nephew and two nieces. Um, you know, I have two sisters, so different families there, but uh, they're, they're all kind of in the crazy phase right now. Oh, are they? <laughs> they <laughs> they're all yeah. between two and five, two oh. and six now, I guess. So it's, it's just a lot of energy running around. Um, not fully independent yet, you know, but wanting to be independent. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty cute. <laughs> I remember it well. I'm still traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, it's good to see you again. Yeah, and you. Yeah, um, it's been interesting to just think about it from a different perspective. You know, in terms of the book, and you know, also what I might talk about and things. So, and like I said to you last time, it's a really weird. It's a really weird thing for me to be in this chair. So, um, so I'm looking to you for your interviewing skills. <laughs> All right. Okay. Hopefully, I can deliver. Yeah, you're used to being in the questioning chair. Yeah, absolutely. Asking your clients questions. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think we can just jump into it unless you have any questions for me before we get started. No, sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a uh, time cut off? No, no. Just when the battery runs out on the iPad next door, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. (laughs) Well, as a way of uh, introducing this conversation, I I think it'd be good to start with your background as a clinical psychologist and hear a little bit about that work that you do and how it relates to climbing. (laughs) Um, But then today's conversation, it's going to be really interesting, I think. I don't normally have... Well, I don't know. I, yeah, more often than not, I have conversations that um, that range wildly. You know, I'm, I'm interested in the person I'm talking to, and that often, you know, we, we often touch on many, many different subjects. But I think with you, this is going to be a much more topical conversation, really focusing around fear of falling. And hopefully, and I think it will, I, I think it'll be a little bit more interesting and hopefully more helpful and broad and and also specific <laughs> than uh, than a lot of the other conversations out there about fear of falling because we usually as climbers look at that in a very one dimensional way like you're yeah. afraid what do you do to work through that but in this conversation and something that really interested me in you and your work is that you really break down fear of falling into many many subsequent or smaller fears that are at the root of that. There's a lot of different reasons why someone might be afraid of falling and it just expresses in these different ways. And I'm really excited to dig into it. But yeah, to get started, uh, welcome again. Thanks for being here. And I'd love it if you could just talk a little bit about your background uh, for people listening. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, Yeah, I am a clinical psychologist. Um, I trained uh, about 20 years ago. got my doctorate in clinical psychology and around the same time I started climbing and my work was generally with the NHS which is you know the UK health service um, working with adults and children with learning disabilities or with neurodiversity like autism or um, ADHD but I was really interested in in climbing it really grabbed me as a sport um, and I also early on got my kind of uh, climbing instructor qualifications and found that when I was trying to coach movements I was actually more using my psychology skills Um, Mm. and that kind of led me down this um, side branch I guess in terms of 
how do you take all that we know about, um, I guess, helping people with anxiety um, or self-criticism, you know, or perfectionism? So we take that from the therapy space and how do we work with it in terms of sport and particularly climbers? Um, and that was just really fascinating to me. And one of the big things that's really interested me about psychology is moving from what's the evidence and the theory and how, what does that look like in, in the real world? You know, so, mm. um, and, and it's for me that that's the interesting bit is trying to think about this theory related to this person and their situation um, and how do we individualize it? Because psychology is based on kind of, you know, large group samples. This is what works for most people. But what does that look like in an individual in a sport that does have risks associated with it? Um, mm. So that's what kind of grabbed me, I guess. Um, and I started to do that as a kind of adjunct to my main work about 15 years ago, maybe longer than that now, actually thinking about it. That's great. And now do you mostly work with climbers or is it still a mix? It's still a mix. It's around about a third of my time working with climbers. Um, and then the other third is kind of more um, usual straight, you know, psychology, clinical psychology work. Okay. Yeah. I want to ask you about gymnastics, actually, as a way mm. to further get to know you and then to connect you as an athlete to this work that you do. Tell me about quitting gymnastics specifically and yeah. then how that showed up later in your climbing. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's... Um, it was definitely something that came back to haunt me and um, the reasons why I left gym. And, and we know when I was starting to climb, everything was great. And then I hit a point where those kind of demons came back. And it was really interesting for me to actually work through it for myself. You know, how do you apply the psychology to yourself as a climber as well? But the gym story really is I, I started gymnastics really young. Um, I was a very sort of diligent perfectionist child. I, I trained really, really hard. And I had a lovely group of coaches, um, so they were very kind of encouraging. But I remember because I was doing quite well, I got invited to a training camp at a kind of a big, a big team. And it was really, really different there. So I can remember having quite a difficult experience on the vault. So with the vault, what you need to be able to do is have a really good flight onto the vault. So by doing that, you have to pull the springboard away from the vault. So you get a nice flight onto the vault. Lots of, lots of air, as it were, and then do your trick and then kind of land it. And I can remember the coach being very um, keen on getting my flight on to be a lot longer. So he was continuously pulling the springboard away from the vault. And I remember getting more and more scared and that gap between the springboard and the vault just seeming absolutely insurmountable, huge. Um, and trying my best to do it and just having a picture in my mind what I needed to do and not being able to execute it and kind of crashing into the vault. And that was a kind of the first injury, I guess, I got. But it was also a really shaming experience because I cried. Hmm. Um, and I remember the coach saying, there's no point crying. That's not going to help you. Go and do it again. Um, and of course, I couldn't. I just had a massive block then about it. And that kind of, that block started on the vault, but it then gradually progressed to other apparatus and I think because probably I was training really hard I was trying really hard to overcome these things I was just getting injured more and more um, so I had this kind of lots and lots of different injuries nothing nothing career-ending nothing terrible but lots of niggles and then just this, this gradual creeping loss of confidence um, and at the time really the you know sports psychology we're talking about you know 35 years ago or so sports psychology was really 
not really around. And it was very much, you know, oh, I'd lost my bottle. That's how it was described. And it was seen as a kind of- You lost your bottle? I lost my bottle. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So so maybe- (laughs) Not not that helpful. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, Yeah. And it was just seen as, that was it. Permanence finished. Your career's finished. Mm. That's it. And I can remember going to my very last competition and like executing really, really well, but a very basic, basic routine and scoring really well for the bits I executed, but just clearly miles, a massive gap between me and my peers then. And, and mm. really at that point, I tried to keep going a bit with the gym, but you know, I think the coaches lost interest. I lost interest. I wasn't really able to do the things that I wanted to do. And there's a lot of frustration for me around that. And I gradually kind of exited the sport. How old were you at the time? I was just in my early teens. So mm. I'd been in there for quite a long time. It was, yeah, it was really heartbreaking actually because gym had been a massive part of my life. I'm there, you know, three, four times a week, um, really long sessions, lots of friends. And then it was just gone from my life entirely. Um, and I really, I think it really affected my confidence all around actually, um, just not being able to do that sport anymore and being very self-critical. And it's only now with hindsight that I can really look back on that and say, actually, there was a series of things that shouldn't have happened there. And had it been happening now, probably I would have got some help sooner to kind of overcome that performance block, which was essentially a kind of choking type episode. Um, mm. but, but, you know, that we're going back. It's ancient history now in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that really highlights why the work that you do is so important because, of course, climbers come into the same things. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's tragic when someone exits the sport because because of that, because of that frustration yeah. and just hitting some block and not having any tools or any support and moving through it or beyond it or or, or whatever they need to do. How did this show up for you in climbing? What were the parallels there? Yeah, so I I remember a few things, but the the first one I remember was needing to... So I was being taken out by um, a friend who was also an instructor, and he was quite kind of... um, He was very confident, very like, let's do this, we can do it. And I remember getting up the climb, no problem, and then having to step across the gap. It was more of a, a little jump. And he had me on a rope, and I could see in his face that he was going to pull me if if I jumped. And that really just all of the gym stuff came flooding back. The thing about the gap um, and not being in control of my own body, which is what I felt like in the gym, mm. because I felt like I was being compelled, you know, to do this vault that I was scared to do. And the more I hesitated, the more I could see his impatience growing and his desire to kind of to pull me over. And I think I just kind of froze there and it, it was all kind of came flooding back. So that was the start of it. I then had a really like spiky kind of few years where some days I would be really on my game and other days I'd have a real low, couldn't really climb anything, wouldn't go above a bolt, wouldn't step across anything, you know, various things. And then then it'd be all okay again. And it took me quite a long time to kind of get my head around that and understand that for me, there was quite a lot of trust issues there that I think came back, you know, all the way to the gymnastics. And also this thing about it was really important for me to be in control and to feel like I had absolute autonomy over what I was doing. Now, climbing is a funny sport because, you know, supposedly there's no rules and no hierarchies and so on. But the kind of the kind of is. Um, 
there's often kind of subtle things, how hard somebody, you know, climbs, maybe the length of time and, you know, other things like gender perhaps come into play there. And so there can be a sense of somebody else is making the decisions, you know, the leader's making the mm. decisions. We go here, we do this route and so on. Um, and I think for me, it was really, really important to take charge of my climbing and to, to box, which kind of came back in climbing. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I think that's um, that's a really using you as a, an example in this case. I think is really helpful. And from that, I want to jump into some notes that I have from emails that we had sent back and forth, and from our first conversation, and really start to look at fear of falling, and then the different fears that are. You know, you you said something interesting. You said that fear of falling is really this catch-all term for lots of different fears. And they all kind of show up in climbing in this similar way. But I have like six different, six or seven different bullet points in front of me. I have fear of the sensation of falling. That's pretty self-explanatory. Fear of being out of control, either physically or emotionally. Fear of fear itself. I think that's really interesting. Um, Lack of trust in the gear, in systems, or in the belayer, or in people more broadly. Fear of getting injured. Fear of being socially judged. So yeah, I'm, I think this is so great, such a great uh, outline to work off of to just kind of start to to look at each of these and what we can do about them, how people can identify which of those fears is really at the root of their fear of falling. And then we can hopefully talk about tools that people can use. But um, I'm curious, first off, with the vault and with experiencing that block and the space between the vault and the springboard... Which of those fears resonates with you? Which was showing up for you in gymnastics and then later on with climbing? Or was it some combination? I think it was trust and control. Those two things are really, I didn't trust. This is a new coach to me and I didn't trust him. And mm. that is really, really important. And I, I think sometimes in climbing, people might use fall practice as a shortcut to try and avoid trust issues and addressing them, if that makes sense. So... I don't mm. think it's not deliberately, but, you know, often the solution is well, if you're afraid of falling, then you need to fall off. But if you don't trust your belayer or you don't trust the gear and so on, that's going to be enormously difficult. And actually, yeah, you might get over it to a degree, but the trust issues will remain. And, and the trust trust is something that takes time as it develops between two people. So skipping back to my gymnastics, I didn't have that trust in my coach. And also as a child, you know, with an adult, I felt very much out of control. So I didn't have any agency in that relationship. So I was clearly saying, I don't want to do this, but I wasn't being listened to. Um, And that kind of Mm. popped up for me in the climbing experience that I described of having to initially just step over that gap. I could see, and, and it happened to me again, I think, where... I was hesitating. I was just above a bolt and I was hesitating with the next moves and trying to figure out what to do. And the same guy, actually, I'd been there quite a long time, hanging on, you know, like, <laughs> and he was like, sure. you, just, you just need to jump off, you know, just jump, take a rest, you'll be able to do it. And I was really not prepared to do that, but I could sense that, again, he was going to take charge of the situation. And that was absolutely not what I wanted. And I was saying, do not pull me off. Do not, you know. And I didn't really have that trust in him because of some of the, maybe the communication between us, maybe the, you know, the length of the relationship. But I certainly didn't feel like I had control though. Um, So, yeah. So I think those two things are really important. And what I realized is when I 
tried what everyone says is the solution, which is falling practice, um, I could fall off or I could jump off till the cows come home, you know. But what really I struggled with was the unpredictability and doing that with multiple different people, you know. So if I had one climbing partner that I really trusted, it was not a problem. But I couldn't just fall off with anyone. And it just made me begin to realise that, you know, fear of falling and jumping off, they don't necessarily correlate that well. You know, it's not always the right solution. There may be other ways to manage an anxiety that shows up around falling. Um, and, you know, it doesn't always cure the problem, I guess. Mm. That's great. And you just touched on this, but I, I want to ask this question and just start to hear a little bit more about your philosophy um, as far as like, you know, if a climber comes to you and they have one of these fears and it's expressing in fear of falling, how you learn more about them and then how you start working on this with them. Um, but yeah, why is it important to identify which fear it is that's at the heart of the fear of falling? I guess what I'm getting at is, does it really change the solution that much? You know, the approach that we use, um, it, it must. I mean, that's why you do what you do. But I'd love to hear just a little bit more about your philosophy there and how you've, yeah, I don't know, some of your experiences with different athletes and we can start to get into different ways to work through and tackle each of these different fears. But yeah, why why is it so important to identify which one it is? This is like a really big and complicated question that <laughs> I'm going to try really hard to give some straightforward answers to, uh, but it might not end up that way. But um, if I start off maybe with a bit of a, an anecdote. So when I was training as a psychologist, um, I had a conversation with my supervisor about a woman he had worked with who had a worm phobia. Now, this feels like it's very off tangent, but I promise no, I'll I come, love it. come back into the climate. I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was explaining to me that he'd used a very traditional, you know, um, treatment for phobias, which would be kind of systematic desensitization. So this is gradually getting used to being around worms um, until this woman could hold a worm. Now, this woman had had a very difficult experience with a worm, very sort of traumatic, shaming experience as a child, and she'd gradually started to avoid worms and then any situation where a worm might appear, okay? So that could be um, going out in the, gar in the garden, going to parks, going out in the rain, going near blackbirds because they, they pat for worms. And, and her phobia kind of grown over time. And when this, you know, my supervisor saw her, she was in her 50s and decided she was going to get some help. But I really remember at the time thinking, why did she need to hold a worm? Because nobody really needs to hold a worm, do they? they you know, <laughs> Right. Yeah, she yeah. just needed to be able to go out in her garden or to go out in the rain. And I think circling back to climbing, so a lot of people, the gap between what they can do on a top rope and what they can do, their absolute you know, leadability, there's a huge gap there. So my question would be, do you really need to hold the worm? <laughs> do you absolutely mm. need to climb at your limit and have that possibility of falling off? Because if you don't, why would you go straight into falling practice? There are lots of other ways of managing anxiety first. So that's the first thing. It's not always the right solution. It's not always necessary to go into that. And it's quite a risky, it's quite a risky practice, falling practice, because you can very easily condition more fear. And that's mm. partly, I think, because people don't necessarily understand um, how to do it right. So they, the key thing for 
falling practices, you need to be relaxed while you do it. And a lot of people, what I see is they try to do it in a very tense kind of way. They're worried about doing it. They're scared. They don't necessarily want to do it, but they feel they should. And so they're carrying a lot of body symptoms of anxiety with them. And that's just conditioning more sort of fear with it. The other thing is for people who are climbing easier routes, it is quite risky physically as well. You have more ledges, you know, more chances to hit things, more, more, more possibility of injury. So, you know, is it absolutely necessary to do that? Are there other ways of managing your anxiety that can get you closer to the performance so that you can enjoy climbing without necessarily having to be right at your limit all the time? So that would be the first thing. In terms of differentiating between the different fears, again, if it's just a fear of the sensation of falling, then you could do any kinds of jumping off falling practice and get used to it, and that would be fine. So that does work for a, a number of people where it's they kind of they trust the gear, they trust the B layer. They're not worried about becoming emotional in front of other people and the judgment that might bring for them. They just don't like the sensation. And so it's possible to kind of get used to it. In that example, that would just be kind of what you talked about with the worm, right? Just like taking slightly bigger falls, just kind of desensitizing and, and conditioning. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, gotcha. And that's relatively, relatively straightforward if it's done right. Mm -hmm. But again, you need to differentiate. So jumping off, which is what most people call falling practice, is not the same as actually falling off because when you jump, you're still in, in control. So if control is an issue for you, then jumping is not going to work. You need to do unplanned, unplanned falls. That, that's part of it. But if it's more about the fear of the fear, then there are other approaches which are more about learning to tolerate difficult emotions that are maybe more effective than just doing some jumping off. Because even when you're still practicing falling, even if you're doing kind of unplanned falls, maybe sometimes you're still going to have a big emotional response and that's going to be very upsetting and unsettling for you if, if it worries you. And that is the thing that maybe we need to work on. So there's a few different strands here. And I think for some people as well, there's, there's issues around, you know, falling off means that I am not able to do something. And that is inviting criticism or judgment from other people or from, from themselves. But that will show up not just around falling. It will show up in terms of maybe being very perfectionist about sequences or being climbing in a very sort of, um, what's the word, a very being overly precise. It shows up in different ways, not just around the kind of the falling. Um, mm. So even if you tackle the falling, if you haven't tackled this idea that we have to climb perfectly all the time, you're still not going to make much progress. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It definitely does. I'm curious, um, are there most common fears that you see show up in, in clients that come to you with fear of falling? Like what are the, are there themes or is it just, or is it just all over the place? I mean, we have a bullet list of, of six different fears in front of us that I already talked about. And it seems like there's, there's a lot of like carryover and connections, you know, it's yeah. obviously it's, it's not cut and dry. Like, you know, people can show up with multiple of these different fears or they can be interconnected. But yeah, what do you see most often? That's a great question. Um, I think quite often it can be fear of fear. So that kind fear of, fear, of fear. fear, fear, fear. So, you know, that absolute, I just don't want to have this 
scary feeling. I don't want to have this difficult feeling. I don't want to have this angry feeling sometimes, you know, or this frustration, but a general kind of fear of feelings. And there's some interesting research out there um, which talks about climbers using climbing to have um, a sense of kind of control and agency over their emotions. So if that's a big driver and a motivation for climbing that we kind of we keep putting ourselves in these situations that cause us a measure of anxiety in order to kind of prove to ourselves we can overcome them. That will go well for a, a certain length of time, but there's always going to be that situation where you really have to bump up against these difficult emotions because that's life. We can't avoid difficult feelings. Um, so in, for those people, I work in quite a different way. Um, and I'd use a, a therapeutic approach called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is very much about allowing feelings to kind of to come and go um, and grounding yourself in the here and now while you do that. Um, so not mm. letting feelings, I guess, derail us from what's important in our lives. Um, but it's a lot about tolerating those difficult feelings that nobody likes, nobody, nobody enjoys having them. But for some people, they're really quite aversive and scary and they, they just kind of want to push them away all the time. Um, mm, okay. So rather than pushing or just putting your head down and trying to power through, overcoming, yeah. it's more about sitting with and accepting and, and letting yourself feel those feelings. Yeah. They're just feelings, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're just feelings. Yeah. Just feelings. Um, what would a practice look like? Like if someone came into you and that's what they needed to work on, are there things that you're working on in your sessions with these climbers or are you giving them homework and things to practice when they go climbing? Yeah. What would that look like to start moving towards acceptance of those feelings? Yeah. So, I mean, it can be a different things. It can be kind of practices. It can also be homeworks and so on, or it can be stuff in session. But I guess for the, that particular group of climbers, what I'd want to do is to find out about their values first. So what is it that's motivating them in the climbing particularly, but also in their life more broadly, what's important to them. And those things that are important to them, are they prepared to tolerate some of the, the big feelings that might go with that? Um, so we have to have a kind of a sense of why we're doing it. And it has to be important enough to work on these, you know, acceptance and tolerance of the feelings. Sometimes people are, are not so motivated, actually, when they think about it, the climbing or whatever is not as important as they thought it was, you know. Um, but if it is, we want to know why, so that we've got a really clear kind of compass to steer us, you know, through some of these choppy waters of the emotions. Yeah, so having a sense of people's values, that's important. But then some of the, some of the practices might be, again, identifying, okay, where do these worries show up in what situations and again having some kind of hierarchy to go through those teaching some grounding skills so that might be something again related to climbing it might be a mindfulness type exercise but it's it would be related to climbing and i would want them to just stay in a situation that makes them a little bit uncomfortable so not super scary but a little bit uncomfortable so we might use a thermometer or something, you know, to kind of to grade the the worries about fear or the worries about falling or whatever it is. And maybe we want to be kind of not green, a little bit into the amber zone, but definitely not in the red zone. That's too much. And I think that will often show up if people are climbing, maybe they will climb to the bolt and the next move above the bolt will be the one that starts to tip them into this 
I'm going to get scared. You know, things are going to get more tricky. I'm going to start feeling panicky. I'm really scared about feeling panicky because then I'll be out of control and and so on. It's like a, a cascade of thoughts and emotions. But what I want them to do is just to stay at that point and to use maybe some breathing techniques or some grounding techniques to allow those emotions to kind of rise and fall until they start to go, they find that actually starts to naturally dip down again and they come back into the green zone. So it's quite Mm. similar in a way in the desensitization, but we're learning kind of distress tolerance skills, I guess, as opposed to it's just about falling off, if that makes sense. So these have broader application than just falling. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, it's on the surface or from the outsider, if I was a third person at the cliff, it might look like the same thing, but Mm. there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more intention, some breathing exercises and things like that that are happening. Absolutely. And we wouldn't necessarily need to fall. All we need to do is to get into the bit which people start to feel is difficult or uncomfortable in some way and hang out there. That's all we Mm. need to do. Because over time, our feelings will start to dissipate. They may rise a bit first, but they will they will come down the other side. And learning that skill is massively important. Um, because like I say, you know, you might overcome it just in terms of falling, but you know, difficult emotions show up every day for, for people. So mm. we can't always avoid them. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting. I've, I was thinking about my own fear of falling. In anticipation of this conversation and having this list in front of me, I've been kind of just like reflecting and thinking about it. And I find it surprisingly hard to pin down the source of my own fear of falling, you know? And and for me, I'm thinking back to, I was probably 22, 23 years old. I was, um, you know, I was five years into climbing. I had been primarily bouldering and Never really had to deal too much with fear of falling. Um, Some fear of injury because you hit the ground every time you fall when you're bouldering, but Mm. um, never too much of an issue. But then I switched to sport climbing about five years into climbing. And like anyone just had so much uh, discomfort come up for me starting to lead and starting to push myself on a rope. And um, Yeah, I wonder if you, I'm just going to like share more of my experience and I I would love to have you kind of analyze it and we can kind of dig into this. But I remember having a really hard time with fear of falling when I was trying to climb like 5.11s because for people listening for context, I had bouldered, you know, V9 at the time or something like that. So I was very capable of climbing 5.11, but I think it was the control thing for me. I think it was the Mm. thought of getting out of control because I could climb a 5.11 and for the most part, stay in complete control the whole time. But, you know, maybe the crux would start to push me a little bit out of control and that would really feel scary. And the thing that really helped me was to actually get on harder climbs because getting on climbs that demanded more of my attention, like the movement Mm. was difficult enough to demand more of my attention and I was more inspired by them as well, like they were more fun. All of a sudden I was focused more on the move than I was about what would happen if I didn't stick the move and then, you know, try the move. And then before I know it, I'm hanging on the end of the rope and it wasn't even a thing, you know? Yeah. But having the, I guess having the, um, having too big of a buffer, like being able to just sit there and hesitate and hang on forever on a 5.11 because it wasn't as close to my physical limit. It just allowed me to just 
overthink and, and just mm. really become concerned about what this what the fall was going to be like and whether or not it was going to be safe and and just really dwell on like that control thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even know what my hope is in sharing all that, but I wonder if you can <laughs> pinpoint like which of those fears was maybe at the heart of that for me, if, if it was the control thing or if you're noticing anything else. The first thing to say is that's super common as well. So, you know, what you're describing there is a focusing issue, isn't it, essentially? So for you, the more you have to focus on the moves and really be, mind, you know, mindfully in the moment, you're kind of, you're more flowing and so on. You don't have room for those anxious thoughts. And I think that's another really great example of an intervention which doesn't necessarily involve practicing falling off. It just involves learning how to focus on what you need to focus, which is the climbing, not the thoughts, you know. Mm. So I think that's that's super important. But I'm always really interested with people who switch from bouldering to sport climbing because, um, and I put my hand up to this myself, I'm much more comfortable bouldering, I think, because of I'm totally in control of that. I don't have to rely on anyone else. Um, you know, I don't mm. have to think about any complexity of systems, et cetera, the trust thing is taken out of the equation essentially with, with bouldering. It's just you. Um, and maybe also that, again, you're much more likely to be closer to your limit. So you don't have the space to kind of get hooked by some of those anxious thoughts. But I guess I, I wonder what, what is it you picture? So if you could run a video of yourself falling off, what would you picture happening? What's the first thing that springs to mind? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think, I think on the five elevens, um, like hearing you say that about bouldering, I, th I think is insightful and helps me kind of clarify where I was at at the time. Because bouldering, you are by yourself, you are in more control. Even if you know that you're going to fall off and hit the crash pads, like you put them there, and you're going to yeah. fall off the boulder straight down to the ground onto the foam. It's just a little bit more predictable, right? Whereas mm -hmm. sport climbing, I think one of my sticking points early on was like, okay, who put these bolts there? I trust yes. the bolts, but like they're in a weird spot and I don't know, it was more of an unknown thing, you know, like mm. fear of the unknown. And if I come off on this move, I don't really know what's going to happen. I, I assume I'm going to fall and be safe, but there's kind of that like weird corner over there that I hope I don't swing into. And there's that little ledge over there that I hope I don't hit. And I think that's what it was. It was just more of a sense of like, I have no idea how this is going to go if I fall off versus yeah. if I drop off a boulder, I'm just going to go straight down, hit the foam, just like every other time. Absolutely. And yeah, you might not have chosen to put a bolt there either, is it? You know, there's certain bits are taken out of your control, essentially. Um, the decision-making or whatever. Plus, you know, it's really hard, isn't it, to to read a whole route is, is difficult unless you've rehearsed it a number of times. Um, so you are going to come up with surprises. And, and I think something with trad climbing as well, sometimes that can be a little easier almost for some people, not for everyone, but for some people with maybe the similar things that I think you and I share, share in terms of our psychological makeup. The trad climbing can be a little bit easier because you get to choose where you put the gear. So yes, you're a bit limited by the rock, but you know, no one else puts it in for you. You, you do it yourself. Um, but it also gives you more things to think about again. So I think it can take some of the focus um, off some of the anxious thoughts. However, that doesn't hold true for a lot of people. A lot of people find, you know, tried climbing more scary than sport climbing. Um, so 
people really vary in what, what it is for them. And I think understanding their motivations is really important to find the right kind of intervention for them. So for you, I might have recommended maybe some stuff around um, some drills where you were out of control, like some speed climbing, for example, where you just go as fast as you can or something that's relatively easy to try to kind of simulate that sense of not being in full control of everything. Um, it might be having maybe your belayer dictate or, you know, where you put your feet or your hands so you kind of get used to that, but again, in a safe kind of context. Um, but it might also have just been more focusing drills. So we might have done some more mindfulness stuff so that you could really get into the, the here and now of what your body needed to do in that moment rather than kind of getting hooked on the mind. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. So I, I was able to work through it just by getting on harder climbs because that demanded more of my focus. Um, I was motivated to do the climbs and I almost said that forced me. That didn't force me. It, um, yeah, I don't know. It gave me the nudge I needed, I guess, to kind of lean into that discomfort of falling because I, I really wanted to do this climb and that felt more important to me than the fear of coming off. Um, it worked. So what are your thoughts about that approach? You know, was that a good approach? Could it have been better? What, do you, what are your thoughts? I'm curious. Well, it clearly works. So, you know, I'm all for if it works, go, go with it. Um, but I guess it reminds me of something that's quite interesting, again, which I see a lot in climbers. And um, if we think of, you know, one of the theories about our emotional systems is we have a drive system, a threat system, and a kind of a self-soothing system. And what I see in climbers often is this very overdeveloped drive system and sometimes quite a developed threat system as well but the self-soothing that ability to be kind to yourself and compassionate around difficult emotions is often uh quite underdeveloped shall we say so the, the mm. tendency is to kind of push through or to be quite self-critical quite self-depreciating you know kind of um, beat yourself up uh, when things don't go so well and sometimes there can be mileage in developing that kind of more compassionate self-responses to kind of even out those systems so that they're a bit more in balance, I guess. But, you know, a lot of elite, really elite athletes, their drive system is massively well-developed, you know, and that's what makes them great athletes. So you have to kind of think about everything that we do is for good reason. Everything that we do has pros and it has cons, you know. So if there's more self-compassion, maybe the systems are a bit more balanced. Maybe there's less drive, for example. So it sounds mm. like you chose an intervention for yourself that kind of went with that drive, you know, and allowed you to really focus. For your general well-being, I might be thinking about developing more on the self-soothing, self-compassionate kind of behaviors, perhaps. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is some of the cultural cultural narratives and internalized scripts that we have as climbers and you know hearing you kind of reflect that back to me i'm i'm realizing like there was definitely a lot of that wrapped up in my desire to overcome fear of falling like that was definitely how i thought about it you know yeah. like i need to get over this like you know this is embarrassing like i want to be able to yeah. take these big whips and just try these hard things and and really not be seen as being afraid. And, you know, I, I don't even know where that comes from exactly, but it's just something that, uh, I don't know, especially as a, a male too, there's like even more of a cultural narrative around men, you know, should be tough and just yeah. be able to put their head down and power through and things like that. 
but yeah, I have this example in front of me of, you know, being brave and pushing through and this narrative that we all kind of buy into that climbers should, shouldn't get scared and should man up and just deal with it. But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that. If you, if you have thoughts that are coming to mind for you. Yeah, I think um, a few things. I was just thinking about this idea of conquering, you know, like we're always conquering, aren't we? Well, the media reports, you know, people are conquering. <laughs> right. This idea of kind of, you know, yeah, overcoming and so on. And and I think coupled with that, you've got this narrative around fear being irrational. You know, fear of falling is irrational because, you know, bolter climbs are really safe and trad gear is really good these days and we have great bouldering mats, you know, but actually falling um, is an innate, fear of falling is an innate fear it's one of the first fears that you notice in babies if you bring a baby down really quickly they will do the moro reflex where they kind of startle and they kind of throw mm. themselves out to break the fall and then kind of clasp it like this and that's one of the first reflexes that a child has i think it's kind of hardwired into us actually so it's not irrational it's certainly pretty sensible to have some awareness of risk because otherwise you know people end up having short lifespans. So mm. I can sort of see that maybe evolutionary wise, we've evolved to be mindful of these risks, but our narrative is all about being brave and conquering and overcoming and it's all irrational. And I just feel like if you buy into that, it really doesn't help you to, to tackle some of these worries that, that come up and to accept them. You need to accept them fully for what they are in order to be able to work with them, I guess. So I would never say for myself that I am over my, you know, my performance blocks or that I'm over my fears of falling. What I say is I do get scared climbing. I do get scared of falling. Um, and I need to do certain things to stay on top of that fear and make climbing an enjoyable experience for me. So that means for mm. me having a really good mental warm up. It means making sure that my internal arousal levels are pretty low before I start and I might do some stretching and breathing and yoga, mindfulness, whatever, to try to get into the right frame of mind for climbing. And I really take my time with it and try and keep on top of my anxiety levels as I'm climbing. Um, but if I just try and push through, I wouldn't do any of those things. And I'm more likely then to bump into a situation which is really, I guess, traumatic. You know, we're kind of setting ourselves up for some really possibly some really big issues where, you know, we push through and push through until we can't anymore. Um, mm. And a lot of the climbers I work with, they have had previous kind of traumas where they've had a bad fall or they've had a really bad feeling experience or they've had an experience where they felt really ostracized within a group or something like that, you know. So there's some really powerful stuff that can go on, I think, when we buy into those narratives and we don't sort of say, put our hands up and say, I get scared. You know, I'm human. I get scared. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I got to climb with Boone Speed and try out the Grasshopper board for the first time last summer when I was in Salt Lake, and I immediately fell in love with the Grasshopper board. I'm an engineer, and whenever I climb in a new gym or on a new kind of training board, I'm always noticing little things that bug me and that I would change. With the Grasshopper board, I can honestly say I wouldn't change a thing. They put a ton of thought into their hold shaping and their layout, and I think this board has the highest bang for your buck training value of any board I've ever climbed on. 
I totally got my ass kicked trying a bunch of V7s that day with Boone. They were super fun to climb on and they felt hard for the right reasons. Not weird or tweaky, the movement was complex and interesting and you had to get the body positions right, but it was super powerful as well. And it requires you to try really hard to hang on with your fingers. You really have to grip the holds actively, which is super good for training in my opinion. That's something that I definitely need to work on. And the best part is because the angle is adjustable, the board is for everybody. No matter what level you are currently at in your climbing ability, the grasshopper board has thousands of possible climbs you can do. It's like having an entire climbing gym right in your home or garage. They even have a sport climbing feature that allows you to climb routes. The lights change as you climb up and down and around on the board for up to 100 moves in a row. I personally think the grasshopper board is the best climbing training tool I've ever seen. But don't take my word for it because the folks at Grasshopper believe in their product and they just want you to try it out and see for yourself. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. And if you love what you find and decide to invest in your very own Grasshopper board, be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out eight by 10 foot board. That's their smallest board. And you can save even more than that if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com to learn more and connect with their sales team. And be sure to tell them I sent you to save $500 or more on your very own Grasshopper. And now back to the show. You said something really interesting. Uh, you just threw out the phrase mental warm up. And I, th I think it'd be really interesting to hear more about your mental warm up and what you might recommend for, for people listening. Because so, something that's challenging about this conversation, but I also appreciate about you, is that you have this very individual approach to your work, to your mental coaching, uh, because every single person is different. Their goals are different. Their experience is different. Their fears are different. So that's great, but it makes it really hard to give people <laughs> actionable advice it's, in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah but um, but I want to try. I want to try doing that right now. And I think it'd be really interesting to start with that mental warm up, what that looks like for you and what you've seen help some of your clients who struggle with fear of falling. Yeah. So I think, again, one of the things that people tend to do is they think they need to get themselves psyched up to climb really well. And my experience is most people that I've coached is a very tiny percentage who need to do that. So climbing is a complex task. For complex tasks, we need lower levels of internal arousal, so physiological arousal, nervous system arousal. Um, uh, easy tasks, sure, you know, you do need to get pumped up for it. And that's why I think some of the psychology or the sports psychology around climbing is quite different to things like running, for example, because running is a, it's not a complex activity. You know, there's maybe a race strategy that's difficult, but the activity itself, you know, the risks are fairly well defined as in terms of usually injury or maybe getting elbowed by someone else, or maybe, you know, whether you win or lose the race, but there's not multiple risk factors to consider. So we have to think of climbing as this complex task. And most people who feel anxiety tend to have a very reactive nervous system. Yeah. So what we want to do is we want to try to bring the arousal levels down. So that could be anything that kind of lengthens the muscles, like yoga might be really good for that, some stretching. Um, for me, what I like to do 
is I like to try to still my mind. So I'm kind of breathing is, is settling. So I'm doing more diaphragmatic breathing, slower breathing. Um, I might be doing some kind of concentration type meditation where I'll just look at a piece of rock, get really interested in the colors and so on. And just try to focus on that and not get hooked by other thoughts. But it's very much a calming kind of activities that I would engage in. I might do a little bit of bouldering around at the bottom of the crag, but I'll try and do that in a very slow and quiet way so I won't make any noises. And what I'm aiming to do there is just to slow everything down, steady everything down. And that's for me is my mental warm-up. Now, there are some people, a very small proportion, I think, where I've suggested, you know, you need to do some jumping jacks, get the heart rate going, get pumped up for this, you know, do some kind of shouting or whatever. But it's relatively rare. And those are the people maybe who have very unreactive nervous systems. <laughs> they're, you know, they're just like, <laughs> they're so laid back. You could put a bomb underneath them and nothing would happen, you know. So, um, but, but most people, they need to calm things down. So we mm. need to think about quietening, quietening type activities. And, and we also need to think about, again, if focus is an issue, are you, what are you doing before you climb? Are you, you know, tying in and chatting and looking at the route all at the same time? That's not getting yourself into a, a single point of focus. And that's probably, again, what a lot of people need to do. Um, so it's about thinking, I, I, what I do is I encourage the people I coach to think about, okay, when have you climbed at your best? Can you try and get that in your mind for it? for me. Think about that. Okay. What do you remember about that day? What, how did it feel? What was the sensation like? Not, you know, I climbed the route and it was brilliant, but you know, what, what did you feel like internally? Um, what did you do at the start? What was it about the conditions? What was going right for you? So there I'm kind of looking at, you know, what can we pull out from their previous experiences um, that will give us some hints and tips about what's going to work for them to get them in the right kind of zone so they can perform at their best. But you'd be thinking mm. about things like what are the internal distractions? What are the external distractions? What is it about the route? What is it about conditions, the B layer, those kind of things. And trying to think about anything that might disrupt, like being tired or being hungry or, you know, being very cold. I get really cold hands. So that's not a great climbing day for me if I start with really cold hands. Um, it's trying to think about all the factors that might become distracting thoughts for you, I guess. Um, and trying to address those. And again, that involves a lot of acceptance of this is who I am. This is what impacts on me. This is what affects me. How am I going to manage these different factors? Mm. And it does take a bit of the spontaneity out of things, but you know, if you want to improve and it's really important to you to, to get on top of that, those worries, then I think it's really well worth doing. Yeah, th man, there's so much that you just touched yeah. on that, that I think True. is worth expanding on. <laughs> um, but yeah, I want to start with, uh, with something that just came to mind for me. It was one of the last things that you just said, you know, talking about, um, this is me accepting, like, this is me, this is my process. This is where I'm at and what I need to do. I'm really fascinated by how difficult it, it can be to to embrace that. I struggle with that a lot, not necessarily in this context, but um, for a long time, I had a lot of hangups around being weird, being different yeah. than other people. What, you know, whatever that means, like we're all weird, we're all unique and, and there's no such, I don't know if there is any such thing as normal, but I remember just being really preoccupied with, 
with me versus normality for a long time. And it's it's been really, it's taken me a lot of work and a lot of time in my adult life to, to start to recognize and accept things that work for me that are different from other people and just learn to embrace them instead of diminishing them or hiding them or, or, or things like that. It's, it's so interesting. It seems like, it seems like it would be easier to do that. I don't really know what that is because I'm, I'm perfectly happy to be vulnerable at the same time. But then in my behaviors, I've noticed that I tend to really keep a lot of things to myself and, and kind of diminish and, and hide things that feel other or different or weird compared to like normal society. Yeah, I think you're touching upon something really interesting there. And another good example is, you know, warm up. Most people I know, will, you know I'll say, you know, do you warm up? And they'll say, yeah, when I go to the, you know, when I go to the climbing wall, I, I always warm up. And what about the crag? Oh, no, I don't warm up. Why not? Because no one else warms up. <laughs> so you're not doing something that's important to you because no one else is doing it. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think, again, there's a bit of a narrative in climbing, isn't it? Again, you know, it's such an individualistic sport in many respects. And yet, and yet we don't want to stray from the norm. You know, there's this sort of, there's like a double standard here, almost like, this is what we say, but this is what we do. You know, we expect people to be sticking to the rules, whatever the rules are. And they're quite a lot of them are unwritten, aren't they? You know, mm. about not top roping climbs first or about not doing this and, you know, being making sure that you're really clear about your ascents. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know, the, the person who climbs the hardest gets to choose where you go or, you know, there's lots of mm. unwritten kind of rules. Wow. And, I, and I think the stuff around warm-ups or around rituals or quirks that we have where a lot of people are hiding and wouldn't it be fantastic if we could all just stop hiding <laughs> yeah it really would i mean i it's it's the irony here is that whenever i see someone at the crag who just embraces their quirks i admire that like i'm impressed mm. by it and i think it's really interesting you know and if anything i i like hold that person in higher respects versus judging or or thinking anything negative about them at all. So it's just strange to me. Like I can see that in other people and yet it's still, yeah, it's, it's really taken a lot of work for me to be able to show up really transparently and honestly in some of my behaviors in front of other people. I think I would link that back to that, what I talked about earlier about self-soothing, you know, those, those that bits that are about being compassionate that's the bit that sometimes is missing in or underdeveloped in climbers' personalities. Um, and that's what's stopping us showing up authentically, I guess. We're policing ourselves without, without mm. any need. Um, so you've got a group of people who maybe don't identify with mainstream in some respects or, but, and yet cannot quite allow themselves to just be vulnerable and be who they are. Um, and then we have all these kind of interesting yeah narratives about bravery and toughness and so on being really important um, so there's a lot of mismatches there i can see and i think it causes us quite a lot of difficulty yeah and it's it's interesting i mean i can't help but notice that everything that we're talking about in this conversation is so relevant to everything else that we do in life <laughs> you know yeah like this is relevant for relationships friendships work like you know everything it's it's all it's all the same stuff. Um, what do we do to help ourselves be more accepting of ourselves 
as far as like ways in which that we're different from our perceived norm around us, like how do we how do we get better at embracing that? I think there's a couple of ways of approaching that, and it it kind of again would depend a little bit, but I'll try and give a an overview of both. So one would be to think about if I you know if I did spend ten minutes meditating at the crag before I got on a route, what would be so terrible about that? What would be the worst that might happen? And we might do some kind of reframing around those underlying beliefs, because when you drill down, you think actually nothing terrible would happen there. But you might also then ask, well, I don't know, people might laugh at me. Um, and how likely is that to happen, really? You know, on a not to 100%. Um, and if it did happen, how terrible would it be? Um, and what's the benefits of you, um, you know, meditating for 10 minutes at the crag? Well, I get to be in the right frame of mind to send my route. Um, so you might look to do some kind of reframing around that. And reframing is not about, it's not about trying to replace the negative thoughts with positive ones. It's more about introducing doubts to some of our assumptions, I guess. Yeah. So mm, you might look for great. evidence, you know, when, like, for example, you said, you know, when I see other people doing that, actually, I think it's really amazing. You know, um, I really value that, respect them for doing it. So that kind of casts a little bit of doubt on this idea that if you do meditate for 10 minutes, you're really strange. Um, so that's what one way of kind of approaching it. The other way is simply to unhook from that and recognize it. it is just the thought. So there's a few different ideas around that that you could use, but one of them um, I might be tempted to think about is, you know, who is this character who is turning up in your mind and telling you that it's really weird to meditate for 10 minutes. What do they look like? If you drew them out and gave them a name, you know, what would the name be? So that you can kind <laughs> of name them and label them when they show up. So you might say, oh, it's um, it's Mrs. 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 kind of, no, don't do it, or something along those lines. You know, Mrs. No has turned up again. Um, it gives a little bit of humor. It helps you identify when you're getting hooked by that thought. And by doing that, what you're able to do then is step back and see it is just a thought. It's not reality. Yeah. So we often fuse with our thoughts and act as if they're real and happening right now, when actually they're just electrical impulses in our brain. <laughs> Nothing more than that. Yeah. So there's that. What you might also do is something like a behavioral experiment, for example, where you might deliberately go to three different crags and meditate for 10 minutes and see what happens. You know, so you treat it as an experiment. I'm going to collect some data. I'm going to be a scientist about this. Let's just see what happens. And that's another way of kind of casting some doubt on maybe this idea that meditating is really weird before you climb. Um, so a couple of different ways of kind of, of doing it. Unhooking would be one. Um, and that idea of you know, labeling who's showing up and what character they are and so that you can kind of recognize them. Um, and the other way would be trying to kind of cast doubt on that idea that it's really odd. I love it. It's, it's interesting. It's so, um, I just started doing therapy recently. I've just had a couple yeah. of sessions and, uh, one of the exercises that my therapist gave me was, was challenging negative thoughts, like to write down the negative thought that I'm having about whatever it is. Like, mm. you know, an example would be my work isn't as valuable if I don't work as much as I possibly can. Like if I don't work, if I don't fill my schedule with productivity, 
then I'm not creating as much value as I could. And that's bad, you know? Um, so, and, and he just, I have this worksheet that he gave me to really just look for evidence, mm-hmm. like you said, for and against those negative thoughts. And they just start to unravel, you know, like you really scrutinize them yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, and look for evidence and it, there's nothing there. There's nothing beneath it. There's no substance, but you know, that, that's underlying that fear. It's just this, like you said, this chemical impulse. And um, I found it really helpful, but it's, it's fascinating how similar that is to what you're talking about. I think what's really important with climbing as well is that you need different techniques at different times. So mm. the, the thought challenging um, is not so helpful when you're actually climbing, because in that moment, you really, what you need to do is you need to unhook from the thoughts and get back into your body, you know, and, and actually to do the climbing. So I would ne- wouldn't necessarily get people to do that, but I'd be more inclined to get them to do some unhooking techniques or simply to do a grounding technique, something like pushing into their feet and really trying to feel the rock under their feet, for example, um, because that's more likely to be effective in a moment where of high stress where you actually need to be moving, you know. But when you get down and you're starting to beat yourself up about how scared and so on and how that was terrible and you took hours on the route, you know, and all these kind of things, that's when your thought challenging can be really helpful. So to come at it from the two two ends can be really, really useful. I want to circle back to breathing and talk a little bit more about breathing techniques because I actually, um, I was looking at your website this morning and I found a free breathing audio download in your shop. And I thought that was really interesting. So I clicked on that. It took me to a YouTube video that's like three minutes long where you guide people through breathing. But um, I think I'll share that in the show notes for this episode, if you're okay with that, for people Mm -hmm. to try it out. But I'd love to just hear you describe it. Like if someone, you know, assuming that most people listening to this, if they struggle with fear of falling for any reason, um, it's most likely that they need to bring the anxiety down rather than amping themselves up. They need to bring themselves down and and calm down. What would that look like? How would you use breathing to assist with that? You know, I assume this is like at the start of the climbing day um, as you're warming up or or before a, you know, red point try or things like that. But what would that look like in practice? Yeah, and you're right. And it can also be on route as well. So I might be having regular check-ins on the route, depending, just to try and keep on top of anxiety levels. But essentially, when we get stressed, um, two things tend to happen. One is either one would be the kind of breath holding, you know, that people tend to do. And the other would be this very shallow chest breathing. So relaxed breathing, which is kind of good for our nervous system. It kind of settles things down, if you will. That comes from our belly, from our diaphragm. So what that looks like is you, if you just put a hand on your chest and a hand on your belly, um, as you're breathing in, it's almost like a balloon expanding in your stomach. And then as you breathe out, your belly kind of contracts. So that's your relaxed breathing. Now, the problem is when people think about breathing, they often think about taking a deep breath in. But what that does is just gets all the breathing into the chest and we get kind of tense shoulders and we actually increase the tension around it. So I'm often encouraging people to take a long, slow breath out and then to try to breathe from the belly. And that that could be about pushing the belly into the harness, for example, into the waistband of your harness. Mm and then breathing out. But longer, slower out breaths, breathing from the diaphragm, um, and also breathing with quite a relaxed face, the kind of, you might have heard on the audio, kind of horse lips sound, which I can't do very easily. <laughs> but, <laughs> kind of thing. Oh, that was great. Yeah. Those are, yeah. 
it works. It never does when I have to demo it. Um, but th- those are some of the sort of techniques which, again, are associated with just dampening down that kind of over arousal, I guess, in our nervous system. Mm. So that's what we want to be focused on. But I often get people to practice the transition. So people will tend to know or you'll be able to observe very quickly that they are either holding their breath and getting very stressed, you know, or they're <laughs> panting and kind of very shallow breathing. So I get them to practice the transition from that, whatever the thing is, into the relaxed breathing. So what happens sometimes is people will just learn the breathing exercises, but they don't practice the transition. And what you really need is to be able to do, to switch from when you notice that your breathing has gone astray, you need to switch that into this more relaxed breathing. It's kind of hard to do while you're climbing. And I think certainly, you know, the more overhanging, the more sort of core tension you have, the harder it is to do but it is entirely possible to do. um, It's just something that we need to practice. Yeah, so I think we're starting to understand a bit more like some of these techniques, which perhaps come from yoga or whatever, you know, we're starting to understand from a scientific point of view that there's good evidence for them working in terms of this dampening down of the nervous system. Um, So some of the old wisdom, we're perhaps coming out with new eyes. um, Mm. That's great. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind for me is that would, that seems like it would be especially helpful and relevant to do on the route when you're resting, like when you're at a stance, when you're at a rest, you know, um, it's that, that's when I think it's so common to get in your head about the next section, about the crux, about the fall, about the run out, whatever it is. And, And it seems like practicing that breathing at a rest would would really help recenter, but also just be really restful. Like, you know, really, really help get the most recovery that you possibly can. Yes. How long should someone do this? Like if it's the start of the climbing day and they're about to start the warm up, um, yeah, what what might this breathing practice look like? Yeah, so I, ideally they've practiced a lot in conditions of low stress. Um, and so they have it without thinking too much. But again, once you're, once you're you know, at the crag, often your attention is a bit all over the place, so it might be feeling a bit more effortful. So I'd want them to settle into it for you know, at least three to five minutes, really at the start of the climb, but then perhaps to pick some spots where you might check in again with your breathing and just make sure that you breathe out. So it could be after placing a piece of gear or clipping. Every time I clip, I try and breathe out, for example. So you get into a bit of a rhythm. So the, the idea is not to let the anxiety build as you get higher, which kind of often happens, um, but to try and keep on top of it, you know, so that we are continuously kind of dampening things down. So you can't be aware of your breathing every single move, but you could check in at particular sections or clips or whatever. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, a cycle of sort of three minutes or so is, is, is good. You want to feel settled into it. Um, and that's quite an individual thing. Some people are very practiced, and they can find that they can just find themselves settling into it very quickly. Other people, it takes a lot longer to kind of settle the mind, you know, tune out some of the distractions and just get into the breathing. Um, so we're all different in that respect. Got it. Got it. I'm curious about this. This I, We've already talked about a lot of this, and this is going to be a little bit of a summary, but I, I think it'd be a really useful summary. Um, I want to use the example of a climber who's a little bit over aroused as far as um, the energy that they're bringing to a red point attempt. Let's say they're tying in for a route that they've been trying, they feel anxious. And, you know, I, I think this is so common, like in part, they're anxious because they really want to do the thing. So there's some 
expectation, you know, there's some performance anxiety, things like that. There's also maybe one section of the climb where they're afraid of falling. You know, it's it's this combination. And you mentioned something earlier, like our minds are, are jumping around, you know, they're thinking about the crux, they're thinking about uh, their belayer, they're thinking about their climbing shoes being slightly too tight, I don't know, you, you know, slightly too worn out or something or, or not broken in enough or whatever. A climber in that situation who just needs to bring their focus to something more specific, wh what might that look like? Um, how would you coach someone through regaining a little bit more presence so that they can relax and hopefully perform their best on their project? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, I'm kind of, I'm getting another, it depends kind of that's <laughs> fine. response, yeah. which I'll, I'll try not to give that because I think um, that's not always helpful. But I guess what I'm interested in with people is figuring out, you know, when the anxiety shows up for you, what do you notice the most? Is it your mind jumping around? Is it that your breathing goes? Is it that you're very tense? Is it that you feel sick? You know, um, is it a lot of negative thoughts? Because that is going to really help me to understand whether we need to do more physical ways of bringing the arousal levels down or whether we need to think about refocusing or grounding or unhooking. So that's the first thing is try to figure out where does it most, how does it mostly present itself for you? Um, if there's things in there that we can deal with, then I would encourage people to have a bit of a plan to deal with them. So for example, if the shoes, you know, are too tight, say, okay, my shoes are too tight. Do I need to do something about this or not? Because again, the tendency is to try and avoid and to try and push the thoughts away, but that's not really going to help you. They're just going to keep coming back. The more we try not to think about something, the more likely we are to think about it. So mm. don't think about pink elephants is a classic example. <laughs> and you think about pink elephants. So you know, we need to try and deal with some of these things if, if we can. If it's somebody where it's a lot of critical thoughts, um, self-critical thoughts, worries about performance and so on, then I would be thinking about, okay, who's showing up here? What are the characters that are showing up? And I might be trying some of those techniques to try and observe and take a step back from that. I think it's really helpful to have uh, pre-climb routine that you use the same it's the same sort of three two to three actions maybe a focusing word or something um, but you do that every time you climb whether you're training or trying to send or red pointing or you know you're on the send so having a routine that you can use again is quite settling so that's something we maybe might have developed and practiced a lot and then we kind of bring it to that red point if it's somebody experiencing anxiety in a really physical way for example, they know they hold their breath and they get very tight in the shoulders and so on, then I'd be encouraging them to do the diaphragmatic breathing, settle into that, um, and then to pick some other points where they'll do that on the route. Um, and I guess if it's somebody where the mind is jumping around a lot, I might have been working on them with some kind of um, simple meditations or grounding techniques that get them located back into the here and now. So I think one of the things that destroys red points is predicting what's going to happen um, and ideally we want that this is where I think mindfulness can be really helpful because there's mindfulness is a practice as in meditation but there's also mindfulness as an attitude and that attitude is about curiosity and openness and allowing things to happen as they will so that's where I think if somebody's particularly a red pointer I would be trying to work on more of a mindful attitude for them, a curiosity. Let's see how this is going to pan out. 
Um, so there's something in there as well, I think, about trusting that you've done the work um, and allowing your body to climb rather than kind of trying to over-control it with these thoughts. So different, depending on how things are showing up for people, different approaches. Thank you for all that. That was excellent. Yeah, it's incredibly helpful, I think. And I'm curious about the mindfulness thing and about meditation. You talked about meditation earlier, showing up and trying to meditate at the crag. And um, I've done quite a lot of, of meditation in different forms. And it's I found it to be incredibly helpful. And the form of meditation that's made the greatest impact by far for me is a mindfulness practice. Um, specifically, I use Sam Harris's Waking Up app. I find that very, very helpful and um, something mm -hmm. I've done for a long time and continue to do uh, less regularly these days. I'd, I'd like to be more consistent with it. But what does meditation mean to you? What does it look like to you? Um, do you have any sort of app or guidance or recommendations that you give to clients who are interested in it? And actually, maybe even before that, I have no idea what people think of it, actually, that are listening to this. Like, it's become very normalized for me personally, but I'm sure that there's still many people listening that think it's religious or woo-woo or weird or, or who knows. But um, maybe first you can just talk about what meditation is to you, why you feel like it's important. And if you have a client come to you who's skeptical about it, but who you think would benefit from it. What's your sales pitch? You know, what do you say and how do you, how do you get buy-in from athletes? I think that's a great question. And I think you're right. Some people are really skeptical about it. And I would say it doesn't, again, it doesn't suit everyone. So I would be wary about it if people have any um, experiences of dissociation or they've got severe amount of trauma or they've been hearing voices or something like that. I think they'll be quite cautious around that. And also I think what I'm, teaching with clients is kind of meditation light as it were so I'm not going into the kind of whole zen practice um, that, that comes with some some of that for people if somebody's I guess the way I would explain it is it is about it's not about your mind never wandering and you're not trying to reach some kind of zen-like state that's not it what you're trying to do is notice when your mind wanders and gently bring it back to the present moment or to whatever you're supposed to be focusing on, because some meditation is more of a focusing kind of a concentration type meditation, whereas the mindfulness is more of a kind of diffuse, isn't it, being in the present moment. Um, so different types of meditation. Um, so ideally, it's that noticing quality and it's the gently bringing it back to where you want it to be. And I think of it as a kind of your mind being like this puppy on one of these long extendable leads you know, you want to gently bring the puppy back to you. You don't want to yank it back. You know, you want to get all mm. cross about it. And it's not the puppy never wanders because it has to explore, you know. And the fact that our mind wanders is a fantastic quality. It helps us to problem solve. So we're never going to get rid of that. But what we want to do is to kind of to train it a little bit more so we can put our focus where we want it to be at any moment. Mm. For people who maybe would struggle with, mindfulness um i really like a technique called the soles of the feet um and that is more could be described as a grounding technique but again it's a sort of a concentration it involves bringing your awareness into your toes each toe in turn feeling whatever's there the ball of the foot the heel of the foot the whole foot and i think every climber can buy into the fact that footwork is important so that that would be my sales pitch you know if nothing else this is going to give you a much better awareness of your feet mm. um, so let's go with that but also it does help to sort of focus the mind um 
So uh, I think that's a really good one. Some people find moving meditations a lot easier, particularly people who are quite busy, lots going on, you know, quite, quite energetic. Then the moving meditations like walking meditations can be really a lot easier than the sitting meditations for them. So, so again, there's a little bit about trying to find the right thing for the person in front of you. The benefits, I think, are huge. So you are learning to focus. I think there's some nice studies that show when people are experienced at meditating, the same parts of the brain light up as when you're in flow. So, you know, we can sort of say that actually maybe what we're doing is creating the conditions for flow. And there's a lot of parallels there between flow and a kind of meditative state where passage of time is kind of skewed in some way. It feels like it took no time at all and all, you had all the time in the world at the same time. That kind of challenge state, but without threat. And that absolute absorption. So there's lots of parallels between those two things. And again, for climbers who've experienced flow states, you know, it can be quite elusive, can't it? You experience it maybe once or twice and you really want that feeling again where everything was just perfect. You, you almost weren't thinking, you were just climbing. Um, but I think, again, that's another kind of good reason to practice meditation is because of those parallels between the two states mm. and creating those conditions of flow to happen. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank you for all that. Um, did I, did I sell it to you? I, you yeah. You, well, you didn't have to, you, you, you sold it really well. I'm already bought in. <laughs> um, but I just want to share, I just want to share one of my own thoughts, um, or my own experience about why mindfulness has been so helpful for me and, you know, using Sam Harris's app, it doesn't have to be that obviously, like there's lots of ways to practice this stuff, but it's, you know, he often uses the breath as a focus point to just have something very specific to really be noticing the sensation of breathing in your body as a way to bring your mind back to something when you're, when you find yourself wandering. But, you know, his, his pitch, which was really compelling to me and, and has really resonated is that like our minds are trainable. You know, we, we think of our bodies mm. being trainable. We put all this energy into physical training and skill work and things like that, but we can also train our minds and, you know, the difference between being swept away by your thoughts, because we all have thoughts, like we all have all these different thoughts that come up for us, for us all the time, and we can't make them stop. We can't really choose them or control them. They're just going to happen. But you can either be swept up in them without even realizing it and be really reactive and be kind of at the whims of wherever your mind goes and the fears that come up, or you can you can become a lot more observant and um, basically be able to just notice things but not identify with them. So for me, practicing mindfulness has made it so much easier to, to notice myself feeling something, but, then, but not like reacting or behaving yeah. from that place. Like for example, if I get frustrated, you know, whereas earlier in my life, I might have lashed out and been angry or frustrated or said like a quippy, snappy comment that was hurtful to someone. Like now I, I'm a lot better at being able to just notice like, oh, that made me feel really frustrated. That's really interesting. Like what's happening there? And then I get to choose, I have more agency to like choose how I respond. And it's just, it's not an overstatement to say that it is life-changing. It has been absolutely mm. life-changing for me and it feeds into climbing. It feeds into conversations and relationships and everything. I mean, everything like our, our minds and our thoughts are, 
are us, you know? So, um, yeah, that's my sales pitch (laughs) (laughs) or Sam's rather. I'm just passing on Sam's (laughs) sales pitch, but I mean, it's, it's, it's truly been remarkable. And, um, it's something that I, these days I place just as much value on that as physical training or any other sort of Mm -hmm. thing that, you know, that we all do to try to improve. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're touching on something really important there, which is this ability to observe, you know, is kind of cultivating that observer position, isn't it? It's getting in touch with that part of us that is um, separate to our thoughts. It's a core us somehow. Um, and to be able to cultivate that and not get swept, swept up in the thoughts is brilliant. But we already have, even if people who don't meditate already have those experiences. So, you know, the, the million and one thoughts that go through your mind, which might be, I don't know, I need to pick up some milk and um, I better dust that shelf over there. And um, what's that noise I can hear? We don't act on all of those. But so why are we acting on particular thoughts? You know, mm. and I think helping people to understand that they already have that ability. They just need to learn how to turn the volume up on that. Um, is, is, is really helpful. Oh, that's great. That's really great. Well, this has been amazing. I, I think this has been really valuable and I just want to, um, I want to give us a chance to hear about your book uh, before I let you go here. But before that, I want to ask if there's, are there any topics around fear of falling that we haven't talked about yet that you feel are important and or any actionable tips that we haven't covered yet that you think would be important to share in this conversation? Uh, yeah, I'll probably think of loads tomorrow. But <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Now, I guess. That's, how it, that's how it works. Yeah, right. well, I can always have you back on. Yeah. This has been amazing. So I'd love to talk to you again. Yeah. I guess the key thing for me is to think about falling practice is the last thing you do rather than the first thing you do. Mm. I think there is so, as we've talked about through, you know, through this conversation, there are so many other things you can learn and that should be learned first. That will, if you do end up doing falling practice, it will give you a better experience of falling practice. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that as your number one go-to because I think it's a kind of, it's a high risk strategy and it's something that's quite hard to do. I think alone without maybe a skillful observer, skillful coach to help you along um, inadvertently, maybe conditioning more fear. So I would say, think about all the other skills you can learn, breathing, you can learn, you know, muscle tension release, you can learn grounding techniques, you can learn sort of thought and hooking, you can learn meditation, you know, you can learn having a pre-climb routine. There are so many different things that you can do. And to limit kind of to limit that um, intervention to just falling practice, I think, is missing out on things which would be beneficial to the whole of your climbing and your well-being as well. Mm. Um, so that would be my kind of my top tip, really. That's great. Yeah, I think I think this is worth a- asking, actually, because I imagine that there's a lot of people listening to this who tune in for performance tips, you know. Um, they're attached to that drive, right? I feel this way sometimes. Like, I really mm-hmm. love the drive that I have to climb harder and the drive that I have to do other things well. Like, that's brought me a lot of the best things in my life, but I also have to mm-hmm. learn how to balance that and turn it off sometimes, um, ironically, to get my best performances. So, I, I'm curious if there's anyone out there who is hearing you talk about, you know, bringing that energy down and being more acceptant does that threaten performance? You know, can we have both? Like, can we perform our best if we start working more on the letting go and the accepting and, and 
letting go of the the pushing through and you know the being brave and things like that what is what has been your experience with your clients like are you through this process are people climbing harder i guess and what would be your encouraging message for the hard charging athletes out there who are maybe a little <laughs> bit too wrapped up in the drive and, and the wanting to perform and things like that i think that's a great question and i, I guess you know sometimes it's a worry that if we let go of that hard driving side that we won't perform you know that is a worry that that i need this i need to be really hard on myself and really critical and really pushing all the time because if i don't um you know then i'm not going to achieve the things i want to achieve and there's a little bit in there about trusting that actually that drive is still going to be very, very well developed i think there's a lot you know a lot to be learned from practicing non-attachment to outcome so you can use your drive to get really involved in the process. So what skills do I need to climb harder? You know, um, mental skills or physical skills. Um, but we're setting more pr process kind of goals for ourselves. But if you're very attached to outcomes and that your drive is all about the outcome, then I think you're probably missing some performance data that can really help you to develop. Um, but also you're going to be setting yourself up for more disappointing experiences. So it's kind of a switch from achievement to mastery if, if that makes mm. sense and oh, i love I think that. actually mindfulness and mindfulness really prepares us quite well for that that curiosity mm. um and, and developing that is never going to be a hindrance to performance that's amazing i mean it's interesting because i actually talk about that quite a lot um the craft of climbing and mastery and and the process like really because that's something I'm, you know, still practicing all the time is being more mm. invested and interested and in, in getting more gratification out of the process versus the outcome. Um, but you just mm. capture that so well. I love how you, I love how you presented that. That was, that was amazing. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that's great. Okay. Let's talk about your book, um, Smart Climbing. Tell me what the book is, and I'd love to hear what made you want to write this book in particular. I always find it really hard to talk about this because I think in many ways, you know, that the book has been in my mind for a really long time and that I've delivered a lot of workshops over the years. I work with a lot of different clients. And I think um, in many respects, it was kind of there already. But um, I was approached by Sequoia Books, by the publisher Andy there. And he said, have you thought about writing a book? And it was lockdown. And, you know, <laughs> you know how people are kind of scratching around for things to do sometimes in lockdown. So, so I started to write it. And of course, what happened really was because of the way I work, my lockdown didn't really transpire to be this um, this experience of having nothing to do. I ended up still working online because that was possible, looking after the kids and so on. So I I squeezed writing the book into um, morning mornings an hour morning an hour each morning five days a week over wow. kind of about six months. Um, but the writing it was fairly easy, I think, in many respects because I wanted to synthesize all the things that I'd coached or delivered in workshops over the years. And crucial really for me to have a both a performance and a well-being slant on it. Um, so I wanted to touch on some of the things we've talked about today, like setting process goals, not just outcome goals, like identifying your values and what is important to you about climbing. You know, is it is it climbing hard or is it the fact that you love um being elegant in your movement or is it that you love climbing with friends or being out in nature you know what are the kind of values attached to that and understanding your own psyche and motivations a little bit more so that you can tailor any interventions around meeting those values but I also wanted to deliver 
a big section on anxiety because I think it's been really under um, undercovered in in lots of previous climbing psychology books. It's had a, you know maybe a chapter at best. So I wanted to really go delve into all the different types of anxieties, like worries about being judged at the climbing wall or judged at the you know the crag. Um, perfectionism, et cetera, you know, fearful. And we wanted to go into the whole gamut of those and really give them some depth and detail. Um, and then I also wanted to capture kind of tailoring the more generic sports psychology interventions like visualization or like self-talk or focus and flow, but tailor that for climbing as well so that the exercises would be really specific to climbing um, because I think there are some key differences there with other sports. And then also to just to touch on some of the stuff which I think has been really current around um, yeah, mental health, around eating, diet, mm. um, and to kind of, I guess, give some hints about how we might develop that positive well-being, I guess. That, you know, climbing is a fantastic sport, isn't it? it? It captures people from very young to, I still see people climbing into their late 70s, you know, at the local crags and gyms. Um, what an, an amazing age range for a sport. So how do we keep ourselves mentally well for the whole of that, that kind of lifetime of climbing? Mm. Um, so I wanted to kind of try and bring it all together into a book um, and to make it really practical so that it was scientific, but it kind of, it looked real and relatable for people um, with some little case studies just to show how that might look in real life, I guess. Mm. Um, so the writing was easy. The editing was just torturous. I, I'm not somebody <laughs> who likes editing. I like to kind of write it and move on. And I almost feel like by this point, I've almost moved on from the book. It's like it's done and dusted and I've got more ideas about where, where next. Um, <laughs> but hopefully I remembered what was in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, yeah, I've had a chance to look at it and just hearing your description of it makes me want to just read it cover to cover. So you, you, again, you, you sold it really well. I, I do want to ask you about the nutrition thing. And I, I don't necessarily, I mean, this could be a whole two hour conversation. So I don't necessarily mm. want to make you feel like you need to give me any long answers or anything. Maybe you can just give me a little bit of an overview to get people curious about what's in the book. But I love that you mentioned that because, you know, we have such a tendency in today's world, especially in Western society to uh, compartmentalize different parts of ourselves, right? Like I'm working on my mental game or I'm working on my finger strength or I'm working on my technique or I'm working on sleeping better or I'm working on weight loss, whatever. But all of these things are connected and mm -hmm. food absolutely has an effect on our minds and so many other things. Um, so I, I would just be curious to hear from you, like what, if you had to just really give a brief summary of what is in the book, like what what associations or themes or connections have you noticed between your client's nutrition and some of these things that you're working on them with them with their mindset, whether that's anxiety or or whatever else. But yeah, are, are there are there themes there? Yeah, sure. And I think it's, you know, it's really current, isn't it? There's been a few documentaries recently and and also climbers, you know, elite climbers coming out and talking about disordered eating or body image and so on. And, you know, we are in a kind of um, a gravitational sport where, you know, leanness is kind of supposed to be helpful. Um, but I think, you know, we're not just heads on top of bodies. We are, it, the mind and body are connected. And 
what I often see is maybe an extension of the kind of the dr- overdoing the drive and the threat and not doing the self-soothing coming out in kind of eating patterns as well. Mm. So, you know, again, that kind of people being very rigid um, around what they will and won't eat. And there may be some scientific reasons behind that, but sometimes I think it's more about how they feel about themselves and it is really about what's the right thing to be doing nutritionally, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah so it could, could be an extension of this kind of self-criticism or a rigidity or a perfectionism. And there's a really close link between perfectionism and you know eating disorders. Um, so I think those are some of the things that sometimes come up is when you know, a lot of climbers are very perfectionistic. It's not always a bad thing, but it can have quite a dark side to it. And so I think it's just being mindful of that, thinking about how kind of all or nothing thinking, which typically comes with perfectionism, might be impacting on fueling, for example, um, and optimal fueling. Um, and I have quite a lot of conversations with a nutritionist, Rebecca Dent, just talking about what's out there in terms of information and a lot of the nutritional information isn't by nutritionists. It's not, you know, it's not by di- registered dietitians. It's by climbers kind of experimenting and, in, and interpreting the science. But I think we have to be mindful of that lens of our maybe overdeveloped drive and threat and underdeveloped feel soothing. Mm. Um, so something that kind of, I think I just wanted to highlight to people that, you know, there may be some risk factors inherent in our climbing culture in the kind of media reporting and how we are showcasing very lean, very muscular bodies, sometimes very thin bodies. And there's links with our kind of personality, I guess. And to, to kind of just give people a heads up that if, if they notice certain things, then maybe it might be worth getting some outside help on this. Because in my experience, once people start down the, the slope of disordered eating or eating disorder, it doesn't tend to get better by itself. Mm. Um, you need, you do need some, extra help to kind of get through it because the leaner you are and the once you get below a certain body weight your thinking patterns become even more rigid and it becomes harder to get yourself out of it yeah that's fascinating so it's more about all of that than specific foods or yeah yeah gotcha i'm not qualified to talk about that yeah gotcha (laughs) gotcha well that's fascinating i don't know if you realize this but you just described me Yeah, I don't know if you know that, but I've I've talked about disordered eating, my experience with disordered eating on this show, and it absolutely uh, came from that place that that perfectionism and that um, that all or nothing way of thinking. You know, like discovering yeah. some some like having some light bulb moments around nutrition and and breaking down some assumptions in that were actually really helpful initially and in moving my nutrition in the right direction, but then just like putting my foot down to the floor with that and taking it like way farther than it needed to go. And I mean, that's, you said something great too, like there might be some scientific reasons to to eat certain ways. And um, that's what makes it so complicated too, right? Like nutrition, I I really still believe and and truly believe that it does matter and what we eat Mm. is what makes us us. Like that's what we use to rebuild our muscles and everything. So of course it matters, but you know the all-or-nothing approach really backfired for me, and um, yeah. I'm still learning. Like, what is the, you know, how much energy should I put into this? Because I, I, 
you know, I've, I've learned that I can't just eat whatever the hell I want all the time. Like that doesn't make me feel good. That doesn't really help me perform well. But having like a spreadsheet that tells me what I should be eating today, which I did, which I have had for, for years yeah. of my life, yeah. um, probably isn't the way to go either. So, um, so yeah, anyway, all that to say, I really resonate with what you just shared and um, I appreciate you sharing it. It's just finding that balance, isn't it? And like you say, it's complicated because we do need to be mindful of what we eat. We're, we're starting to understand the role of gut bacteria as well, of mental health and so on. And, mm. and, but I think it's, again, sometimes I'm picking that, you know, about why, you know, what, what am I really, what am I really doing here? What's really driving this? Um, and understanding ourselves a little bit better would be helpful in terms of trying to achieve that balance. So we're not going too far one extreme mm. I'm putting you on the spot with this question but I wanted to ask you is there is there anything from your book that you are still working on in your own climbing oh god loads yeah <laughs> I love it can you give me some examples absolutely loads yeah <laughs> I think I've had a really um I've had a really complicated relationship with climbing since having my kids actually and I think um, before having them, I was climbing really, really well. I felt like I had all my ducks in a row, you know, they were, everything was just as I wanted it. And, you know, with my first, I climbed till I was about eight months pregnant, um, no issues whatsoever. And the second one nearly destroyed me. I have to be frank. <laughs> so, you know, he was really, he lay really awkwardly from really early on. He was kind of sideways jammed across my stomach and I was really uncomfortable and managing a toddler and so on. And then, not long after he was born, um, I got really sick with pneumonia and then I just didn't really recover for about four years. And wow. it took a really long time to get to where I am now and lots of investigations and trying to figure out what was going on. But having these repeated chest infections, repeated joint pain, uh, repeated temperatures, you know, this ongoing picture of being really fatigued and so on. And so I think what I am working on is that balance word again, which is, you know, what would happen is I would be well and I would try and go straight back into where I was before. Mm. And of course, I wasn't actually well enough to do that. I wasn't fit enough. I then would be very hard on myself about, you know, gosh, you can't even do this anymore. You know, so very self-critical. Um, and then I'd crash and be ill again and back to square one. And then you try and pick yourself up. And so I guess I was battling with, in the face of what was a, a chronic illness that was quite unpredictable um, and lots of anxieties and question marks about what might be going on, just battling with staying motivated. You know, what's the point if I can't climb regularly? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and my technique's still there, but I have no strength. You know, my, I lost a lot of muscle mass. So again, that just frustration. So I feel like I'm kind of coming out of that now, both physically and mentally. But what I've had to do is be really, really careful about the expectations I've been putting on for myself and to really try hard to develop that acceptance and curiosity. Um, and that has involved lots of kind of unhooking, you know, who's showing up here? Is this the old stuff from gymnastics again? You know, still, I'm 47 years old. <laughs> this is like really old stuff now. Mm. Um, trying to manage that trying to aim for balance and not doing this kind of yo-yo thing where you're all in and then all out because you're sick, mm. but trying to aim for something that's sustainable in the long term. Um, and I think my, my interest 
my values really around sustainability has really grown in the time. And that's been something that's been really helpful to me is to have that as a kind of a guiding compass is what is sustainable for me, for my health, for my family, what's sustainable for my climbing. Um, and it's, the climbing doesn't look anything like it used to look. Now it is um, taking advantage of small bits of time and going bouldering and, you know, going to places because I like exploring and trying new stuff. I have that kind of real novelty thing that I love. So I've got the newest guidebook for North Wales and trying to go and tick various things off in the guidebook, just going to places, not to tick off the problems because I don't really have that strength, particularly at the moment, but to keep the exploring thing and to keep the sustainability things at the heart of what I'm doing. Um, and we're all a work in progress and mm. I'm, no diff- I'm no different to anyone else in that respect. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's really um, generous of you to be that open and to share it. I'm sure it's relatable and yeah, just speaks to speaks to you that you're you're living it. You know, you're you're the real deal. You're you're not just writing about it. Um, mm. You're practicing it yourself. I think that's just such a powerful reminder um, to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So I think you. you knew you need to you need to taste test things yourself, don't you, to make <laughs> sure that they were they're worth going in the book. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, who is this book for? Uh, I hope it's for anyone who wants to understand their psyche a bit better and to learn some new skills, or maybe to consolidate some old mental skills as well. I hope it's kind of wide ranging enough that it will be good for people who are starting out thinking about mental training and also for people who are more seasoned at it. Um, and maybe there's some bits in there that's broader and about well-being and kind of long longevity in, in the sport. Um, so I hope it's for everyone, maybe apart from complete beginners, I would say, you know, get your climbing going first and then maybe come to the, the mental side of it a little mm. bit. Um, but yeah, I hope so. And I hope coaches can find it helpful as well, although it wasn't necessarily written for coaches, but I, I hope there's some there's lots of questions in there designed to get people thinking that I think coaches could probably use. Oh, that's great. Awesome. And is it available for purchase now? It is, yeah. I think um, it's on the Sequoia Books website and it's on Amazon and Waterstones, various online kind of retailers. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. I'll put links to it in the show notes for people that want to get you. a copy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You said that uh, you, you wrote it and you almost feel like it's just done and behind you and you're already uh, on to, yeah. to, to the next thing. <laughs> What's next for you? What are you excited about right now? Uh, I'm really excited. Well, what's imminently next is um, next week. It's uh, school holidays here, and so it's a family trip to Fontainebleau, oh, uh, which we're really we're really looking forward to. It will be very hot, I think, but um, you know, it's the kids really enjoy bouldering and scrambling around in the forest and biking. So we're going to do some of that. Oh, that's perfect. Um, so that'll be really good. And I guess you know, I'm I'm also this weekend. I'm off to the Women's Trad Festival in Ireland to deliver a workshop. Um, I've got kind of thoughts about maybe writing something for coaches as well and maybe thinking about the kind of coaching relationship uh, and how to really foster that connection. Um, but I, I'm not I'm not starting it yet. <laughs> My husband will kill me, I think, if I start another book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to let it brew for a while, maybe another 10 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There you go. <laughs> 
Uh, well, this has been amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, yeah, I think this has been a really valuable conversation. It's given me a lot to to be thinking about. I'm excited to dive back into your book. And um, yeah, just appreciate appreciate you. Thank you so much for doing this. Is there? Um, oh, you're welcome. I want to I ask before I let you go. Is there any any final words? Any final thoughts or, or um, messages you want to put out there for people listening? something to, you know, a question you would, you would ask them to get them thinking anything like that, that you want to leave people with in this conversation? I would say for anyone who's thinking about mental training to go right back to that very first time you went climbing and what did it give you? And to really think about what excited you about climbing, because I think sometimes in that progression, we get a bit lost in chasing the next grade or the next challenge. Mm. Um, but to really think about what was it that you first got out of that very first experience of climbing? What did you love about it? What hooked you at that point? And to try to make sure that any mental training you do directly links back to those early motivations. Because um, I think that's what's going to keep you going and kind of keep you interested for the long term in the sport. Riding out any kind of difficulties, any health concerns, any injuries and so on. It's just trying to connect with that. Those, those early exciting moments. What, what was it about that? Mm. Oh, that's great. I'm going to be, I'm going to be thinking about that question for the rest of the day. I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. That's really interesting. I love that. Well, thank you oh, again. I really, you're welcome. I really enjoyed it, Stephen. And thanks so much for having me on. I, um, and I really, it was really helpful to have your side of things as well and some examples to kind of work with. That was really, really good for me to kind of have some material to work with. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, perfect. It's helpful for me too. I, every time, you know, every time I open up and share my own experience, even just saying it out loud, it's always interesting how much you learn uh, just putting things into words and describing your experience to someone else. It's like, I, I've, I've made some connections actually in this conversation that I hadn't made before. So. Oh, um, brilliant. Excellent. Oh, that's really good to hear. Yeah. All right. Fabulous. Well, I'll uh, I'll let you get back to your day before uh, the iPad dies, and you've got yeah. So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> They're like magnets, TV and magnets. Yeah. Amazing. The best babysitter. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much, David. Right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Have a great day. Bye. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Rebecca Williams as much as I did. If you want to check out her book, I put links to Climb Smarter right there in your podcast app. You can find links to where you can buy it if you scroll down. And before you go, don't forget to check out the Arcteryx film Free As Can Be. I watched it a couple weeks ago. I absolutely loved it. And if you love climbing, if you love Yosemite climbing, especially if you love adventure and trad climbing and the allure of El Capitan and Yosemite, I'm sure you'll dig it. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, free as can be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Also, be sure to check out Rhino Skin Solutions. These are earth-grown products made to help support your precious skin so you can sweat less, go longer, and climb harder on the rock. My favorite product by far is the Repair Cream, which does wonders to help my skin heal faster between climbing sessions. Check out rhinoskinsolutions.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. 
And finally, don't forget to check out the Grasshopper Board. Check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing or visit grasshopperclimbing.com to find out where you can find a board near you to try it out for yourself. Tell them I sent you and when you're ready to get your hands on your very own Grasshopper Board, you can save a lot of money on your order. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. I appreciate you. I hope you found something helpful in this episode. Best of luck with your climbing and your performance and your fear of falling. Let us know how it's going for you. Reach out if you have any questions. We'd love to hear from you. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. One, two, three, three, two, one.